Hey all, being a 007 back with a daily roundup of the movies I saw today at the BFI London Film Festival. Today I'm going to be talking about the sci-fi film Arrival, the beautiful love story Patterson, and finishing up with the controversial slave rebellion film The Birth of a Nation. So to begin with Arrival, this movie is set in the contemporary world. It posits a scenario in which 12 alien spaceships come and land, hover over different parts of the world. And this initially prompts a coordinated response by the world's governments, cooperating, sharing scientific information. The US team is led by Amy Adams, who plays a linguist called Louise, and Jeremy Renner, who plays a scientist, a physicist called Ian. And together they go into the alien pod that's landed above Montana in the US and try and make contact with these almost sort of squid-like aliens who, it transpires, communicate in a very unusual manner. They sort of squirt out these circles and the little patterns around the circle's edge signify words. But even more significantly, they speak and think in a non-linear way. In other words, think of if you were to say a sentence, but every word that you said could come out in any order because you could assemble them at any point in time, if that makes sense. At any rate, it does in the context of the movie. And a very important sort of philosophical idea being explored here is that, is it the case that the language that you learn influences not just how you think and perceive and describe the world, but actually your neural wiring? In other words, if you were to try and communicate with an alien in non-linear terms, would that fundamentally impact the way in which you perceive time? So that's the sort of the sci-fi thematics of this piece. The emotional thematics come from Amy Adams' character, who in a sort of very important five to ten minute prologue, so it's very important you get to this movie on time, we see her life with a child, so the baby growing into a young daughter, and then tragically killed by a disease in her young teenage years. And this is the sort of emotional burden that we see Amy Adams' character carry through the film. And as it goes on, we're going to learn more, obviously, about that backstory and the choices that were made that led up to it. So to start off with what I really like about this film, like I said, I really love the visual design of it. The aliens look fantastic, as do the spaceships. I love the sound design. I love everything about how handsome it is, how smart it is, the colour palette it uses, the casting, the fact that Amy Adams just allows herself to look like a middle-aged woman. You know, she has crow's feet, she, her face wrinkles. It just, everything drips with authenticity and, and a real desire to make a quality sci-fi film that treats its audience with respect. But I do feel that, in a sense, this is rather a derivative film. Um... The idea of a central protagonist in sci-fi who's burdened by memories of guilt relating to, not guilt necessarily, but just haunted by motherhood and what went wrong in that is very obviously similar to Gravity in Sandra Bullock's performance, which I think had more emotional heft. I mean, there are definitely scenes in this film, Arrival, which are meant to pull at our heartstrings and give us an emotional catharsis, which I don't think worked as well as Gravity. The other way in which I think it feels like a pale imitation is really in comparison with um, Christopher Nolan's Interstellar, which obviously was an incredibly intelligent film in which the science had been very clearly thought out 
And you may or may not have bought into the sort of emotional arc that kind of went around that. But certainly the idea of um, an emotional arc as a shorthand for how you perceive time and, and different dimensions, I think is very well played out in Interstellar and is hinted at here, but never really worked out in the same way. In other words, here it feels almost like, um, oh, I don't want to say like a cheap whodunit because that, that's actually really insulting to a film, which I do think is very good. I just feel that, in a sense, is not as interested in the science as Interstellar is. And because it comes so soon after Interstellar and Gravity that, you know, if you like your sci-fi, that is a little bit of a problem. So overall, I would say Denis Villeneuve, great director, and he's produced a really visually, orally interesting movie here. I think Amy Adams' central performance is really good, especially when you get to the sort of the final, I guess, 20 minutes or so of this film where she's really entering into the minds of the aliens. It's really fascinating to watch and see. But I think just as pure sci-fi goes, it's probably not the the most interesting sci-fi film I've seen in recent years. Nonetheless, well worth checking out. And I think it's testament to just how good this film festival has been. That Arrival is one of the weaker films I've watched, but that's just because so many of them have been unbelievable, you know, beyond films of the year, films of the decade. At any rate, Arrival has a running time of 116 minutes and is rated 12A. The movie played Venice, Toronto and London 2016. It will be released in Australia on November 11th, also on November 11th in the UK and the USA. Okay, so next we go on to Patterson. Um, oh, words cannot describe how much I loved this film. And in a sense, it's a very uncomplicated film that sort of resists, it resists cynicism, it resists nasty plot twists, it resists drama. It's 115 minutes and it's just a beautiful love story. It's the story of a guy called Patterson, who's a bus driver in the city of Patterson, New Jersey. Um, so this is contemporary America. It's a kind of small, rather shabby looking post-industrial town. And he's just a mild-mannered guy, you know. He's, he's, he's one of life's good guys. He's played by Adam Driver, who you'll know as Kylo Ren from The Force Awakens. So sort of parallel opposite character. And he's the kind of guy who just delights in the simple pleasures of life, of maybe listening to a kind of funny story of some of his passengers on the bus or just seeing a beautiful waterfall, maybe. Um, he writes poetry. And as the movie starts, we see him recite some of his poetry and it kind of feels a little bit hokey and bad. But then as he refines it, you, you realise there's a certain beauty to it. And actually, I learnt after watching the film that the poetry has been written by a real-life poet called Ron Paget, And it's, it's really good, actually. I would buy a book of this poetry if it existed. The inspiration for some of Adam... Adams for some of Patterson's poetry is the world around him, the things he chances upon, but also his love for his girlfriend Laura, played by the wonderful Golshifte Farahani. And she is she's hilarious. She's just this incredibly creative woman. She is obsessed by black and white abstract patterns and circles. She has all these dreams, and as a cynical audience member, you might think them ludicrous. Like, at one point, she wants to be the cupcake queen of New Jersey, and then in another moment, she's buying a guitar off the TV because she wants to be a country and western singer. And it's very easy to be cynical about these things and think that she's naive and wasting money and just ludicrous and delusional. But this isn't the film. I think this is a film from Jim Jarmusch that kind of challenges us to 
not be ironic and judgmental and to have a little faith in people, have a little hope in people. You know, her cupcakes do sell. She does learn a song on the guitar. And, um, you know, this is a couple who genuinely love each other. And I was thinking about this, and I think The Only Lovers Left Alive, uh, Jamusha's previous film that showed Tilda Swinton and Tom Hiddleston as two vampires who genuinely were in love. And it just kind of feels in his mellow old age, he's making these beautiful films, quiet films about love. But if this is about the love story between Laura and Patterson, it's the man, I think it's also a love story between Jarmusch and us, the audience, and kind of forgotten, abandoned, shabby old towns. You know, towns that are kind of beautiful in a slightly shambolic way, where the, the factories are closed down, and there's just a way in which he shoots it, always at sunset with, not sunset really, I guess, sort of just sun-dappled is the word. It's always got a warm, beautiful glow. And even though what you're photographing is derelict factories and vacant lots with overgrown weeds, there's a certain beauty to Patterson, the town. And also a love of just local life, you know, the idea that you do just know the guy who lives around the block and, you know, your local bartender and that there is no drama. At one point, a bus breaks down, the bus that Patterson's driving, and it's kind of like a running joke. Everyone's like, oh, are you okay? It could have turned into a fireball. And like he and the bartender, they just kind of like resist this. Like, of course it didn't. This is Patterson. Nothing ever happens. But that's kind of its charm. So I don't know. I mean, I, I can see how hokey this sounds. I'm describing a movie about two people who are just in love in an uncomplicated way and nothing ever happens. And yet, for two hours, it's just a delight to be in their company. And um, I'm truly in love with this film. I think it's it's one of the sort of quiet stealth entries for best film of the year, really. It's, it's such a wonderful message as well, that there's poetry. There's poetry in the everyday. If only you have the patience and kindness to look for it. So please, please do try and check out Patterson. The movie has a running time of 150 minutes. And apparently it's rated R, but I'm not really sure why. It also played Cannes Toronto in London 2016. It'll be released in the UK on November 25th and in the USA on December 28th. Okay, so that brings me to the big movie of the day, The Birth of a Nation, um, which obviously comes to the London Film Festival laden with controversy. And I really did try to sit down and watch this movie kind of on its own terms, just as a work of art separate from that. But it's really hard. It's really hard to do that because Nate Parker, who wrote it, directed it, produced it, stars in it, is really front and centre in this film. And the film is essentially about a slave called um, Nat Turner. This is a true story um, in the early 1800s in, in the USA, who, according to this film, is, is a very religious man. He learns to read early, is given a Bible by a kindly slave-owning mother and is taught how to preach and gains fame as a preacher but he also gains visions and thinks of himself as a messianic leader of his people and per this film he is brought to sort of political consciousness by seeing repeated acts of sexual violence and it's interesting that kind of almost the opening scene of this film shows the adult Nat Turner try and save a woman from the threat of sexual violence by having his master buy her. And she eventually becomes his wife and then suffers a brutal rape. And again, that's a powerful motivator for him into fomenting the rebellion. Um, it's just difficult. It's difficult to watch that, to watch a film where 
Because this isn't a balanced film, right? This isn't a balanced film. This is a film that gives us a messianic hero, a hero that is decreed by the gods as a leader of his people. And he's shown in unflinchingly good terms, like he's the good guy. This is a film that deals very simplistically. So slave owners are basically all sort of evil, often alcoholic rapists. And then there's the one good slave owner, which is the one who teaches Nat how to read and she's, or how to read the Bible at any rate. So she's almost angelic and good and quietly suffering. And then if you look at the, the black characters, basically none of them, much like the white characters, none of them have like real characters that are nuanced. They're all just stock characters. So just there to basically be people to be roused up by into anger by, by Nat Parker. Sorry, not Nat Parker, Nat Turner. The women characters in particular get particularly short shrift because they're just victims, right? Or sort of suffering mothers and grandmothers who tend to your wounds. So everyone in this character in this film, every character in this film gets very little attempt at nuance. Um, there's a house slave, so that's always interesting to see how they're going to be treated. Obviously, sometimes Uncle Tomish. And this was particularly disappointing to me because when the rebellion is on the on the cusp of being started, the house slave actually comes to Nat Turner and says, look, I think you're doing something wrong here because you're going to put us all at risk. What do you hope to achieve? You don't have weapons. There's not enough of you. You're just going to get shot down and become martyrs. And we'll all get strung up, you know, as as revenge, which is basically exactly what happens. But I don't think this is a film. I don't think Nate Parker is a writer and director who's interested in exploring the pitfalls of Nat Turner's messianic complex. I don't think he's interested in giving us a nuanced and balanced judgment about whether this was a wise rebellion and what it meant and what its legacy was. Because its legacy wasn't just reprisal. You know, for the 50 white people they killed, 200 black people were then killed. But, you know, real sort of um, clampdowns on the ability of black people to meet and to assemble. So was it really a step forward or a step back? Um, and I'm not saying it was or wasn't, but I just think it would have been really interesting to explore that cinematically. But like I said, this isn't a film that, that wants to get under the skin of Nat Turner. If he was a guy who saw visions, who when he was, you know, hung, hung, for his rebellion, would have seen the vision of an angel taking him up into heaven. That is the version of events that this film's going to show. I also think it's interesting, like, by its editing, what it doesn't show. So, for instance, its, it's angelic messianic hero cannot be shown to actually be killing women or children, even though we know that's what happened in the rebellion, and that the one person he actually admitted killing was a woman. Rather, here, he kills his slave owner, who's a man. Um, we also know that in real life he wasn't um, a man who turned himself in to stop his fellow black people from being lynched until he did so. He was found in hiding, whereas this movie wants to make him seem more heroic, that he puts an end to that bloodshed by, bloodshed by sort of offering him up, himself up as a martyr. So I think this is like, it's, it's a well-made, the fact that this is a first feature is, is amazing, right? I mean, there's a, there's a definite assurance of the direction here, it looks very good. The location shooting is very good. But I feel it's simplistic. I feel that it wants to create a hero and not interrogate any of his presumptions and any of his complexes. The female characters, actually characters in general, including kind of him, don't get any kind of nuanced treatment. And it is the elephant in the room, but it is very difficult to watch this movie objectively, even if you want to. 
when the entire motivating purpose of the main character is to prevent sexual violence to women, and yet that is precisely what he's accused of. So, in real life, as an actor. So, it, it's a difficult picture. I don't think it's that, I don't think it's a bad film. I don't think it's a great film. It certainly does not have the visual flair of 12 Years a Slave or the political anger and the emotional heft of something like Django Unchained. It's just not in that league as a film. So I think just objectively, technically, as a film, it's just not as good as those films. It's not as balanced. It's not as interesting. Um, and it comes freighted with this controversy, which I think if if circumstances were different, if the thematic material of this film were different, if the person involved were not front and centre in every single scene, it would be easier to digest. But to be honest, I couldn't. I just couldn't, and I tried. So for that reason, you can take this discussion of the birth of a nation as an objective review or not, as you choose. I mean, I freely admit that I was very um, affected by issues outside of what was on the screen when watching it, and that definitely is a pitfall. So Birth of a Nation, sorry, The Birth of a Nation, not to be um, confused with the D.W. Griffiths propaganda, has a running time of 120 minutes and is rated R, rightfully so. The movie played Sundance, where it won a couple of awards, Toronto and London 2016. It was released in the USA on October 7th, and I think that its release has been affected by the controversy, judging by the takings. It's going to come out in the UK on January 20th, um, and in Australia on February 2nd. So there you go. Uh, Arrival, kind of mixed feelings about that. I think it's very good, but it has some flaws. Patterson, the standout movie of the day, if not the week. Absolutely beautiful. And The Birth of a Nation, too simplistic. Too much of a martyr complex and uh, not enough of an interrogation of what was really happening. Very mixed day today at the festival. Nonetheless, whatever you're watching today, this weekend, I really hope you have fun at the cinema. And if you agree or disagree with my take on any of these films, I know The Birth of a Nation is out in America. Please feel free to reach out on social media. With that, thank you for listening. (laughs) 